Welcome to Cafecito con Math, a podcast about showing up, doing more, and doing better for people. We're on a mission to help people become visible, active, and successful in their financial lives. Join us. But at the beginning, like you had no support system, like offices were closed, banks. It was just like either if you find somebody on the phone, but like math and many nonprofit organizations, they were shut down. So it was really hard to apply for this helps on my own without support system of, okay, like I need this paper. I don't know where to get it. Just like those little details, it was hard to get every help finished from beginning to end. That was Diana, a working mom and entrepreneur who you met in our last episode. Diana touches on a real crucial aspect for surviving the pandemic, support. Delivering support in the form of cash aid through MAF's Rapid Response Fund was an enormous task. More than 63,000 grants and $55 million across the country. But it was a task that had to be completed thoughtfully with respect for people's experiences through COVID-19. Joining me here today to talk about just that is Joanna Cortez Hernandez, Director of our Engagement and Mobilize team. Hi, Joanna. How are you? Hey, Rocio. Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Really excited to talk to you because you've been at MAF for a few years now. And you were here when we first launched the Rapid Response Fund way back in March 2020. I know that probably feels like a lot years ago, but what do you remember from those early days? You know, what was happening on the ground? What did you consider the big wins and challenges at the time? Yes, definitely feels like light years ago. And it was within really that first week where we were working remotely, where I feel like we were all talking about what was happening and talking about what we were hearing from clients directly when we got on the phones with them, when they reached out to us via email. And that's when we really realized like this is real. Folks' lives are being impacted in many different ways. And that was really the birth, if you will, of our rapid response efforts. We had three different rapid response efforts. We got kicked off with the California College Student Fund. That was the first rapid response effort that we kicked off. And it kicked off in April. And it was pretty wild because I remember that we set up an application. We were set with partnering with organizations and funders for this particular fund. And it was launch time, um, day one of opening up this fund. And within hours, I remember our phone lines were ringing off the hook. There were so many calls that we were getting. There wasn't even like a break in between those calls. It was like you would answer one call, you would hang up and the phone would ring again. And so you answer the next call. And a lot of what we were hearing in those phone calls were folks who were interested in applying to that fund, but were having issues actually being able to apply. And so we were obviously in a panic mode, but we decided that what was going to be best for us was to pull the application to figure out um, what was happening on the back end of our systems and instead replace it with a sign-up form, a temporary sign-up form. And so instead of the asking apply to receive a grant, um, it was, please submit your personal information. We're going to contact you once the application is live again. And again, this is all in the context of the California College Student Fund, which was the first, our first rapid response effort. But nonetheless was 
pivotal in our rapid response journey as an organization and being able to, one, meet the needs in the communities that we serve, but two, also thinking about how we can be better set up internally to be able to meet those needs um, and rise to the occasion that these times just put us in. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. And I think something I heard is that by July of 2020, we had received more client inquiries in one month than in 10 years combined. Does it sound right? Yeah. Does that feel like Yes. You know, another thing that I was thinking about is, you know, just to shed a little bit more light into who were the people applying? Who was coming to us? Who were you hearing from? Yeah. So as an organization, we've really been intentional about serving low-income and immigrant communities, communities of color. And we knew that those were the exact same communities that would be hit the hardest due to COVID and that would have the least to fall back on. So those are the folks that we continue to focus our work around, who we really center our work around. So the folks applying for our rapid response relief were families with children. They were folks who were either sick with COVID themselves or had somebody in their household who was sick with COVID, had no to very little income as a result of the pandemic. We heard things like, I lost my job due to the pandemic and I no longer have any income to support my family. And I'm very worried about how I'm going to pay rent or put food on the table for my children. There were many families who talked about the fact that their children shifted to online virtual learning. Um, And so they were having to juggle on top of the stress, um, the financial stress that the pandemic brought into their lives. They were also having to juggle that with being a teacher and helping their kids navigate online learning. And so those are just some of the points that I remember from the stories that I heard and that I read throughout our rapid response efforts, many which I think are still very true today, right? Because we are still living through a pandemic and folks are still being impacted by it in many ways, including in their financial lives. So I hope that paints a a picture for the folks that we serve back in 2020 through the end of our rapid response efforts, but also technically the folks that we're still serving today. The scale of our rapid response efforts was incredible. More than 200,000 people applied for relief through the rapid response fund that we had. Rocio, just based on your experience at MAF and the work that you're doing within and even outside of the evaluation team, I know it was hard to be able to think through a framework for who we say yes to when they're, when the need is tremendous. So can you speak a little bit more about that? You know, how, why would you say MAF did not fall back on a first come first serve approach or a lottery system? And more importantly, um, how did we figure out who to say yes to? Yeah, this is always a hard question to answer because the reality is that there is just such devastating need. And, you know, I think something I heard was that like, if we had done a first come first serve approach, so person one applies we give them the, we review the application, we, we give, you know, we give them out the, the grant. We would have exhausted our existing funding at the time within the first 20 minutes. 
like that's exactly, you know, at that time we had more limited funding. We didn't have the $55 million. And what we knew was that, you know, who are the people that are applying first? They're the people who knew about it right away, who had the technology to apply right away, who had the time they were able to, you know, step away from the classroom, their work in order to apply. And that's not the reality of the people we serve. People work a lot, you know, they work during the day, they have their children to take care of. There's so much complexity to their lives that we really wanted to take into consideration. We really wanted to, you know, enact a more thoughtful approach to who was going to ultimately give this grant. Again, given the circumstances of we have a limited pool of funding. In an ideal world, of course, we'd love to give everyone the funding. That was not the reality we were dealing with. And so we took a step back and we ultimately devised a financial equity framework. Another big thing for us was taking in consideration structural barriers, such as, you know, you're not getting a stimulus check because you're an undocumented immigrant. If you're a student, maybe perhaps you're a foster youth, previously foster youth or DACA recipient. So these are some of the structural barriers we were taking into consideration. Joanna, earlier you mentioned like there were some folks who had lost their entire, their jobs or their income. So we had to dig deeper and prioritize first those who had fully not just lost income. Again, that was the original question. We had asked specifically, like, did you lose your entire job? Do you now have a zero monthly income for people who were supporting their families? Like that was the first original question. We had to dig even deeper and say, do you have small children under five? Do you have family members who have perhaps gotten sick with COVID? That's another financial strain that we took into consideration. So for all these three broad categories that we had, we ultimately had to dig deeper in order to truly prioritize people who could ultimately benefit the most from the relief, as we like to say. And something that I think is so striking still, even when we reflect back on this, is that the different parameters, the different pillars that I've talked about dealt with income, financial strain, structural barriers, but mostly financial, really, which is why we call it a financial equity framework. And the crazy thing to us is that by using a financial equity framework, we reach more than 93% people of color. Again, to us, that's striking because we didn't ask about race or ethnicity in the pre-application. But ultimately, when we devised, when we really targeted people who had the most need, it ended up being people of color. And I think that that's just another way to, to think about how we target relief and how we offer resource as uh, support. And so I think, you know, for us, it was just like a huge takeaway to see that like by focusing on finances, we had so many of the intersectional issues that so many low income communities face. Yeah. And I think you hit on like a really good point there, Rocio, that just really about the intentionality behind the work, right? Like you said, like there were these three pillars, right, that we really focused on as an organization to build out this financial equity framework. And we had to dig deeper in each of those in order to be able to identify folks who have the the least resources um, and who needed the most support. Something else I wanted to say really quickly, Joanna, is also, you know, going back to, you know, taking a step back and, and creating this financial equity framework in order to revamp our applications and, and give relief in an intentional way. That was done within like a week and a half. <laughs> um, and I want to flag that because, you know, timing is everything for the way that we do our work here at MAF. We wanted to give people timely 
cash assistance because they needed it ASAP. And so, you know, it sounds like a very, and it was a very complex framework overall, but at the end of the day, it was done very quickly. And again, going back to, we've been doing this work. We already know, you know, we're in touch with clients. We talk to them, we hear them, we listen to them. And that's why we were able to do it so quickly because we already have this experience of working with them. We were listening to them and, and, you know, um, updating these, these frameworks live. Yeah, definitely. We didn't do this work alone. We worked with incredible partners to reach more people. I know, for example, that you worked a lot with partners in San Mateo County, Joanna. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did you collaborate with others? Yeah. So for our immigrant families fund, we, as you said, Rocio, we collaborated with San Mateo County to basically create the San Mateo County Immigrant Relief Fund. So we had this partnership where basically like MAF, if you could say kind of was the administer of this fund. We were the ones screening the pre-application, sending out the invitations to the full application, reviewing those applications, handling client inquiries about the fund and the application, making sure that the money was disbursed to folks who were approved for this fund. But there was also work that we had to do to be able to get the word out. And that's really where that partnership was key with San Mateo County, because we're an organization based in San Francisco. And the one thing that we know is very true in all of our work, I'm thinking lending circles is the fact that like, we are not the experts about what is happening in places outside of San Francisco. And so we intentionally partner with organizations in those other places so that we can get our programs, our services, our resources out to those communities who may need them. Because at the end of the day, those organizations know their communities much better than we ever will. Um, And that's true for our Lending Circles program, but it's also true for our rapid response efforts. That is why we partner with San Mateo County, because we knew that at the end of the day, these three organizations, Faith in Action, um, Legal Aid, and Samaritan House, knew their communities much better than we did, knew the community of San Mateo County much better than we did. And so we partner with them to make sure that the word got out and that folks were applying for um, these funds and that folks had access to these funds. But I know I've talked so much already about my experience with clients and with partners. But Rocio, I'd love to hear more about your experience, um, specifically speaking and connecting with clients, because I know that you had the opportunity to interview so many, um, so many of them as part of this large survey that we um, rolled out to immigrants excluded from relief. So what was that like? Can you speak a little bit more about that survey? and even share more about the insights that you gained with just connecting with more of our clients. So something that's very important to the way that we do our work at MAF is not just giving out. We know that people have need and we wanted to make sure that we gave them timely cash assistance so that they could meet their basic needs. Um, But another thing that's very important to the way that we do our our work and in particular our evaluation is making sure to follow up, to understand how the product, the service that we're giving people is really impacting their lives. And so for us, it was very important to create a culturally relevant survey that would truly capture the complexity 
of their experiences during the pandemic, of people's experiences during during the pandemic. And this is why we were very intentional. This was a multi-month process of designing a survey as we were giving out this cash assistance to follow up and see, you know, how are you doing? How are you and your family doing during the pandemic financially? emotionally, health-wise, socially. We really wanted to capture the complexity of experiences by asking different types of questions. And, you know, we started designing the survey in July. We kept refining it in August. By the time we got to testing it, I mean, testing is critical to, to the work that we do. And keep in mind that a lot of these testing sessions were in Spanish because that was primarily the primary language, the immigrants who had received our grant, their first language. Everything translates differently in another language and everything gets longer. The sentences are longer in Spanish. <laughs> um, and so, you know, trying to make sure like, is this too much text? Do you understand the wording? And so I ended up doing um, about more than 20 one-on-one sessions throughout the entire month. Most of them were, were in Spanish. I think it's, to date, one of the one of the highlights of my time in the year and a half that I've been here at MAF because it really was such a personal experience because, you know, these were immigrant family fund grant recipients. Again, most of them were Spanish speakers. They're all immigrants for the most part. And, you know, going into these sessions, you know, you're always a little nervous, like, oh, I'm going to talk to a stranger and ask them to ask, ask them to answer all these very personal questions about them, their lives. And I think something that just like captivated me was like how open they were about sharing their experience. You know, at first they're a little nervous and then they start going through the questions and then they, they get comfortable. You know, their answers start getting longer as it goes on. They start getting more personal. And so at the end of the session, which honestly on average took about an hour, um, just because we were really taking our time with, with each part of it. At the end of it, one of my questions was always like, is this too long? Like, did I lose you? I want to make sure we don't drop, we don't have people drop off as they're, as we're answering these questions. And they always look so surprised. And they're like, no, like, isn't there more? I want to answer more questions. But I remember there was like a particular situation where one person was like, you're the only one who is asking me about my experience during the pandemic. I want to be able to share more so others know what it's like to be left behind. And that was generally the sentiment. And I think that's something that I think I found so heartbreaking because I could not believe, maybe I could at a high level because at the end of the day, this is the reason we did this fund because so many 11 million and a half immigrant families, immigrants and their families were excluded from stimulus checks. So there was a reason we were doing this because they were excluded. But hearing it from one person, from two people, from 20 people over and over again saying like, no one else is asking me. I feel forgotten. You're the only one that has literally asked me how I'm feeling during this pandemic. That was very touching. And again, I think it was a, a great reminder of the need to continue to power through, the need, a reminder of why we do this work. Yes. And I think after hearing everything that you've just shared right now, what just really comes up to mind for me is the fact that, yes, listening to clients has always been at the center of our work. And that is how we've really risen to the occasion time and time again to meet the needs of communities that we serve because we listen to those communities. And what you shared about just the importance of that in our rapid response work at a time where millions of people did not feel heard or seen, I think is very, very important. Um, and like you said, underscores just the importance of our work and the people behind that work, you and I and many other Mephistas, right? 
And it just makes me wonder, not wonder, but think more about how do we, through the incredible milestones that we were able to achieve through our rapid response efforts, um, from rolling out an application in a matter of a week to being able to distribute more than $30 million in direct cash assistance by the end of 2020 to this large survey that was rolled out that got over 11,000 responses. Connecting all of these dots is, I know, something that we're in the process of doing and have been doing since the start of this rapid response efforts. And I think those dots to me are like creating this podcast, writing a research briefs, which I know you are very well acquainted to. But I think it's important for us as an organization to be, and I want folks to know this, to be connecting these dots of all of these milestones of this important story so that we're able to continue to center conversations around what needs to be changing at a policy level on the client's that we serve, that are experiencing and are living through these hardships um, in real time. So I'm excited about where we're going as an organization and just talking more about our work and talking about it at a high level because I think there's a lot, a lot of work that can be done, that needs to be done, and we can't do it alone. Um, right. I think this is where partnerships come into play, where policy conversations become ever so more important. So I look forward to all of what's ahead for us in that respect. Thanks for tying it together so beautifully, Joanna. That is exactly right. And for our listeners, today we talked a little bit about what it was like to take rapid response beyond math in our home base of San Francisco. Next week, we'll actually be hearing directly from one of our partners who made this work possible, April Yi of the College Futures Foundation. Thanks for listening to Cafecito con Math. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you can catch the next episode as soon as it's posted. And be sure to follow us online if you want to learn more about our work, join a free financial education class, or get more news and updates on Cafecito con Math. We're at missionassetfund.org and on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.